Hey everyone, welcome to Brain Health with Dr. Nissen. In this show, we explore the universe's great unknown, the human brain. In my reflections and interviews with guests, we'll go to the forefront of psychiatry, neuroscience, nutrition, and medicine to see how we can enhance our mental health, sharpen our cognition, and reach better performance. This is Brain Health, and I'm Dr. Nissen. Let's dive right in. All right, welcome Brain Health community. Today we're talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. It is the topic of dementia, uh, specifically Alzheimer's dementia. For a lot of us, we may have grown up seeing our grandparents begin to suffer with Alzheimer's, uh, or we may start to be seeing our parents now struggling with Alzheimer's or even peers. Uh, and it's really, it can feel really trapping because, you know, you, you feel like it's sort of inevitable or that uh, once it happens, there's nothing you can do about it. But actually, more and more research is coming out to show that there is something that we can do about this. And so my goal today is to talk about what these things are. What are the risk factors that heighten our risk of developing Alzheimer's? What are some of the evidence-based treatments that, um, or interventions that are um, helping us to prevent the, uh, the progression of Alzheimer's? And then uh, once we start to develop symptoms, what are some things that we can do to help reverse those things? So that's what I'm hoping to cover in this episode. So to begin, Alzheimer's is a type of, um, of disease that causes dementia. Uh, and there are several different causes of dementia. This is the most common type, followed by vascular dementia, which in many ways may be related. Um, uh, but vascular dementia is where you have problems with your blood vessels, mostly related to uh, the, the same risk factors for having things like a heart attack. It's the, the sort of hardening of the arteries uh, that increases your risk of developing vascular dementia. So we'll talk about Alzheimer's dementia today, the most common type, um, and how you can change your trajectory once and for all. So there are a few different ways that our body and the diseases in our body um, point to uh, the development of Alzheimer's in the brain. Uh, but all of these different ways kind of lead to the same pathology at the end, the same findings in the brain at the end. And this is the development of beta amyloid plaques, which are uh, these proteins that, that uh, stick around uh, and, and form gunk sort of between different parts of the brain, uh, and also tau tangles, which are another form of protein that accumulate in the brain, and Alzheimer's. So um, there are a few different things that we can do uh, in our life to, to prevent those things. But to begin, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about how this all happens. So uh, the amyloid precursor protein uh, is a protein that, will, that really sits at the center of Alzheimer's disease. It lies on the outside of the neuron cell membranes, and it can be activated in two different ways. One way that um, you know, is really detrimental for the brain, and one way that is really uh, good for, for growth of the brain and protection of the brain. Um, so if the brain is lacking key nutrients or it has pathogens um, or associated inflammation, uh, things like insulin resistance, then the brain will go into this state of self-protection uh, through the amyloid pr uh, precursor protein. Um, and when this happens, then um, there will be sort of a cascade of, uh, of all these um, things that, that decrease the, the growth um, of the uh, of the brain cells and also increase the risk of developing the, amylo the um, amyloid, beta amyloid plaques and tau tangles. Um, 
Similarly, there are different things that we can do to increase uh, the protective factors in the brain and increase the factors that grow uh, our brain cells, things like brain-derived neurotrophic factor, um, BDNF. So um, an important factor for determining kind of where our um, amyloid precursor protein or APP goes is our genetic risk. Uh, so there are several genes that, inf that impact our risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, uh, but probably none are more important than the APOE4 allele. You may have heard of this before, um, or you may not, uh, but this, this is um, an allele that, uh, that we all have. We get one copy from our mother, one copy from our father, um, and based on um, on uh, which type we have, whether it's APOE3 uh, or APOE4, uh, then it, it really has a big impact on our risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So um, specifically, APOE4 is the allele that is higher risk compared to APOE3, um, and uh, the risk is really quite quite extreme. So approximately 75% of Americans have no APOE4 alleles. Um, so uh, the, for those people, there's uh, no elevated risk. But approximately 23% um, of people uh, have one copy of, of, of an APOE4 allele. So, you know, con compared to the very minimal risk of having just uh, of having no APOE4 alleles, where there's only like a 7% lifetime risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, those that have one copy of the APOE4 allele uh, have a 23, or sorry, have a 30% lifetime risk of Alzheimer's disease. And then only 2% of the population has two APOE4 alleles, so that means they got one from their uh, mother, one from their father, and that 2% of the population has a 50% or greater lifetime risk of developing Alzheimer's. So con compared to just a 7% risk at baseline for people that don't have uh, the APOE4 alleles, uh, those that have two APOE4 alleles have a 50% uh, or more lifetime risk. It's almost 10 times the risk um, that these people um, are facing. So this sort of begs the question, you know, looking at this from an evolutionary perspective, why would our bodies develop uh, this, this process for creating these proteins that are so detrimental to our own brain processing and our own memory, um, our ability to remember loved ones? So there are uh, a few benefits and, uh, and, and likely one very acute uh, um, prominent benefit from having these amyloid plaques, which is that they can be protective in the short term. So um, they, it's, there's been a few studies that have shown that uh, these amyloid beta plaques actually bind to things like viruses in the brain, metals uh, like mercury um, uh, that can create um, tissue damage. Um, so there's sort of this antimicrobial effect that these uh, beta amyloid plaques may be having um, and that that um, is part of what their benefit is, part of why our body created them. However, while we used to only live for 30 years and we were living in caves um, uh, thousands of years ago, uh, you know, that, that would be a good benefit uh, to be protected against a virus or against some other pathogen um, and uh, to, you know, be protected uh, in the short term. And we weren't living past the age of 80 where uh, we were concerned about having, you know, advanced memory uh, 
after that time. But now in the world that we live in, where uh, there aren't as many uh, risks to our lives and where we're living longer, uh, it's been showing to be you know pretty counterproductive. So what are some different ways that we can understand our own risk factors for developing Alzheimer's? So like I mentioned, genes are one of the ways that we can think about our risk factors for Alzheimer's. Another one to think about is how much inflammation you have because uh, the role that uh, inflammation uh, in our body has in, uh, in increasing our risk of, um, of activating uh, these anti-inflammatory and antimicrobial um, features like the beta amyloid plaque, the more uh, risk we're going to have for the development of these in our brain. So, um, so w something that you can consider is whether uh, you have um, elevated inflammation in your brain uh, from something like uh, a metabolic syndrome. So this is when you have hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes or prediabetes. These, uh, these increase your uh, inflammation in the body. Uh, also, if you have an ongoing infection or minor infection um, that, uh, you know, isn't, maybe you don't have a full-on fever and you're not, uh, you don't have something like pneumonia that's really an infection raging through uh, a lot of your body, uh, but you could even, just from having uh, inflammation around your teeth, like periodontitis um, or gingivitis, uh, those can uh, slightly increase the amount of um, inflammation in your body. And also, um, if you are having sort of intestinal complaints, so if you have uh, something like a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or uh, uh, something causing leaky gut, where you can have more exposure of bacteria and or pathogens to your bloodstream that then lead your body to uh, to release more of these um, um, inflammatory reactants. Uh, all of these things will increase your, your body's um, inflammatory response and your, your brain's response of creating uh, different plaques um, in the brain that increase your overall risk, uh, risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So um, like I'd already mentioned, insulin resistance is an important part of this to focus on. First of all, because insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome increases the amount of uh, inflammation in your body. But secondly, uh, just having insulin resistance alone has a negative impact on the, the growth of your brain. Uh, your body becomes more and more resistant to insulin, meaning it doesn't respond to insulin. And insulin is really important for causing growth of our body's tissues and cells. Uh, so for people that have a lot of insulin resistance, they may not get the benefits from uh, insulin later on down the road once their body uh, uh, you know, is trying to maintain the brain tissue and, um, and uh, the, the brain tissue is resistant to insulin. Um, similarly, you want to look at whether you have the optimal levels of the nutrients, hormones, and growth factors that are so important for maintaining and growing the brain. So these are things like uh, different vitamins, like vitamin D, vitamin B12, homocysteine, um, uh, your thyroid hormone. Um, and then um, you wanna look also at uh, your uh, oxygen levels. Oxygen is really important for the functioning of the brain. And so many people in this country have undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea. If you've ever heard of obstructive sleep apnea before, a lot of people just say sleep apnea. It is what um, 
what happens when you have a collapse of your airway while you're sleeping. So for most people, this just sounds like snoring. When you're snoring, uh, all that that is is the, uh, the collapse of your airway you know, creating a tighter tube so that when the air goes through it, it's, it causes a vibration of your airway um, and it creates that snoring sound. But what happens is, um, you know, if it gets tighter and tighter and closes all the way, then these people with sleep apnea throughout the entire night are having multiple moments of apnea where they're not breathing. Um, and that decreases the amount of oxygen and the blood um, and over time can have an accumulate sort of an accumulating effect on the brain tissue um, so sleep apnea would be another thing that uh, uh, could decrease your 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 brain's uh, functioning and put you at higher risk of developing dementia um, and then i would also say that as part of, of the neurotrophic factors to be cons um, um, conscientious about one of them would be brain derived neurotrophic factors so this is BDM, BDNF, people describe it as um, like miracle growth for the brain. It is a factor that is created by the body um, and that helps to grow um, and maintain brain tissue. So BDNF is important um, and, and can be grown in its amount through exercise. Exercise, exercise has been shown as one of the main ways to increase um, our, our BDNF, um, and it's just one of the many, many um, benefits of of uh, of, uh, of exercise. So uh, finally, uh, you would want to look at whether you have any pathogens, any threats that uh, could increase your risk of accumulation of these amyloid beta plaques. These could include things like uh, spirochetes, so things like the um, uh, Lyme disease, spirochetes, syphilis, these um, can accumulate and can cause inflammation that can uh, increase your risk for developing Alzheimer's, also viruses like herpes, uh, like I mentioned, um, or syphilis, like I uh, uh, like had mentioned before. Sorry, syphilis is a spirochete, but herpes is a virus. Um, parasites like Babesia, um, oral bacteria um, like Porphyromonas uh, gingivalis, which is associated with poor dentition. Uh, so, you know, having exposure to these different pathogens increases dementia risk as well. To summarize, there are a few different things that can contribute to our development of Alzheimer's disease, and these include things like increased inflammation, increased sugar or insulin uh, resistance in the body, um, three, having not enough growth factors, or uh, four, uh, being exposed to different sort of pathogens or toxins. Um, and, uh, and then additionally, one thing that I didn't say is having head trauma. So um, by having concussions from playing things like uh, contact sports uh, or being in car accidents, these are different things that also increase Alzheimer's risk. So probably wondering, what should I do about this? So what I've done personally, um, and I would suggest that other people do, is first look to see what your APOE4 um, allele status is. So this can actually be found out by some of these um, uh, consumer genetic tests that are available, like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. In these, you'll be able to know that if you have one APOE4 allele, your, your Alzheimer's disease risk is increased by something around three times. And then uh, if you have two alleles, then it's something like 10 times the amount of risk that you have. Um, and knowing this is really important because then you can more aggressively um, 
take on these issues of um, inflammation or insulin resistance, uh, things like your uh, risk factors for uh, developing hardening of your arteries, more seriously take on your issue of um, obstructive sleep apnea, as well as your exposure to uh, different pathogens and things like that. So, uh, so one of the most common things here where people may want to aggressively um, uh, take on uh, their own risk factors is in the issue of insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance. So insulin, for anyone that's, that's not aware, uh, it is something that is produced by your body in order to move glucose out of your blood and into the cells so that they can be used for so that it can be used for energy um, and so what happens is if you are eating a very sugary diet all the time your body is uh, noticing hey my glucose is high and it's creating more insulin um, and that insulin is um, is having a hard time you know moving all of this excess glucose um, into the cell and so what happens is you know your body needs to create more and more insulin in order to move more and more glucose out of the blood and what happens is after you're exposed to more and more insulin then your body uh, is less resistant to the same small amount of, of insulin that it would be in, uh, in somebody that otherwise wasn't consuming as much sugar and so uh, it's important then to um, to uh, correct uh, the the amount of sensitivity your body has to insulin, uh, so you can increase the sensitivity to insulin by doing a few different things. So uh, if you go and talk to your doctor and you're screened for something like prediabetes or diabetes, uh, the the cutoffs uh, will uh, you, they're most commonly uh, determined based off of your hemoglobin A1C. Um, and so uh, what most doctors are looking for is a number, um, you know, below 5.7 or below 6.5, or if you're a diabetic, below 7. Um, and these numbers, uh, at least as they relate to Alzheimer's, are probably a little too high. Um, from some of the different sources that I'm reading, it really seems like an optimal or a healthy uh, hemoglobin A1C to shoot for is something under 5.4. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that really is something that's lower than, than the cutoff that, uh, that, um, that people are probably looking for. But certainly, um, if you don't have prediabetes or diabetes, then that is a good sign that you're doing well in this regard. Um, but uh, similarly, another thing that might be looked at is your fasting glucose level. And something like uh, a 70 to 90 bodes a lot better for protecting against dementia than does something you know, 125 and above. So similarly, looking at um, insulin resistance, uh, there are some different diets that can really help with this and some different lifestyle things that can really help with this. So uh, when I said that your blood sugar is high, that's not just from consuming sugar as you would, you know, as it's dumped into lemonade or as it's in candy or something like that. Really, a lot of things turn into sugar in your body. Um, and so what you want to do is choose different foods that have less simple carbohydrates in them. So simple carbohydrates are flours, white rice, um, you know, plain uh, um, uh, like oatmeal, things like that. Um, these things are really going to cause a big spike in your blood sugar and as a result your body's going to have to produce more insulin which is just going to increase your body's uh, sensitive or re resistance to the insulin uh, so what you want to do instead is you want to use plant-rich foods um, 
uh, foods that are higher in fiber, that are higher in, in fats and proteins that then uh, will uh, slow down the, um, the absorption of the sugar into the body. Um, so you want to look for things that, um, uh, you know, have, have a good amount of fat as a way to keep you um, satiated because if you don't get enough calories from fat um, or from protein, then your body's going to uh, crave it through other ways and most likely through sugars and simple carbohydrates. So uh, good fats to look for are monounsaturated fats, things like olive oil, things like avocado oil. I'm looking over at my oils that I have over here. Um, so avocado oil uh, has a really high smoke point, so you can cook with it um, at higher temperatures. Um, and olive oil is got so many different benefits to it uh, but uh, you can you know put it pour it all over anything all over any sort of uh, salad I even I put it in soup last night uh, it's a good way to make things um, a lot more filling and get you, get you a lot more calories um, and also decrease the glycemic index of the foods that you're having so uh, there are a, a few different benefits also to going at times without food so you there, everyone's aware of sort of this uh, modern phenomenon of intermittent fasting. Um, it's something that a lot of people are doing. And, and to be honest, it's, I think it's gotten quite hokey in a lot of different ways. But one of the benefits of going periods without food is that it gets your body into a state of metabolic flexibility around the, your insulin levels. So uh, uh, again, if you are constantly fed in a fed state, then your body's going to be producing insulin to move that blood sugar, um, that glucose into the cells. And uh, what happens is our body was um, evolutionarily created um, in order for us to go at times without uh, having food, uh, where we would go out and hunt and we wouldn't get anything and we would be hungry for a day. Um, it, this is this is all uh, a natural part of human history, and as a result, we've developed stores in our liver and our muscles throughout our body to be able to get the the energy that we need, even when we're not fed. And these moments where we're using um, energy from our liver or from our muscles to be fed are times that are giving our body a break from taking glucose from what we're eating um, and and moving it into our cells. So, um, so uh, I would really uh, suggest that people try to go uh, at least, uh, you know, at, different groups can go can can fast for different amounts of time but to fast from time to time uh, gives your body a break from the insulin um, so uh, to go you know at least 12 hours a day between meals is probably uh, good and safe for everyone men and women alike but then once you get to women in uh, childbearing age um, then there's concerns about doing uh, extended fast but there are people that do fast for you know 16 hours a day, some people that once a week will do a 24-hour fast or a 48-hour fast, uh, and there's benefits for different you know, fasts depending on, uh, on how long they last. So uh, that certainly would be something that would help with your uh, insul insulin sensitivity, increasing your insulin sensitivity in your body, um, and would uh, uh, therefore help to decrease the risk of developing uh, dementia. Similarly, uh, there are a few different um, uh, things that you can eat that can uh, help to uh, protect your brain tissue. 
Uh, those can be things like supplements, uh, like vitamin D, as I had mentioned, as well as omega-3 fatty acids. So uh, most, most prominently, DHA has important roles in the brain, and EPA. So uh, these are found uh, most commonly in fish sources, things like salmon, mackerel, anchovies, um, as well as uh, sardines are, are good sources. Why I say these fish in particular is because, like I had mentioned before, mercury by itself is a risk factor for developing dementia. So uh, mercury is found in a lot of fish um, and fish products. And uh, in, in general, the higher you go up in the food fish chain, the more accumulation there is of mercury in the fish. So small fish like sardines are actually a really great choice for getting um, a lot of those omega-3 fatty acids, but being able to avoid um, mercury because it's in such small amounts. And so mackerel uh, and salmon, these are uh, fish that, that don't have a lot of the mercury, but that uh, have the benefits of the omega-3 fatty acids and uh, in general are super delicious as well. Uh, so like I'd mentioned, vitamin D, uh, vitamin B12, getting enough vitamin B1. Uh, so folate is, is a really important micronutrient and it's found in things like foliage, uh, so uh, like dark uh, leafy greens. These are uh, really great ways uh, to help to uh, give the, the brain cells what they need. Another thing, choline. Choline is found prominently in eggs um, and found in the egg yolk. So anyone that thinks that it's healthier to just eat the egg whites um, is wrong, uh, in particular from the choline perspective. It's one of the major benefits of eating eggs, and you get more choline uh, if you're eating the egg yolk um, in uh, a lesser cooked um way with a, you know, with a runny yolk than doing it hard scrambled. So that would be um, something to try as well. Uh, so in addition to uh, eating, there's been some studies that have looked into um, and some anecdotes looking into the effects of uh, adding on coconut oil in particular uh, for protection of uh, dementia and relieving some of its effects. So what happens in uh, the brain scans of people with dementia is that you find areas of the brain that have, that have decreased glucose metabolism. So they're not using glucose as well as an energy source. And so those areas of the brain um, aren't firing on all cylinders, they're sort of shut down. And what you can do, and what our bodies have evolved to do, is use different energy sources other than glucose um, in order to produce the energy that we need. One of those energy sources would be ketones. Um, so uh, ketones are produced by our body naturally by the breakdown of fats, and uh, coconut oil has a high amount of medium-chain triglycerides, which are uh, very quickly um, switched in our body from medium-chain tri uh, trigly triglycerides into uh, ketones, which then can be used to energize our brains. So in people that have uh, dementia, there's some evidence that giving them coconut oil or just medium, train, medium chain triglycerides or MCT, um, that uh, those areas of the brain that become quiet because they're not so good at, at um, using glucose anymore are actually able to then function again uh, based on uh, ketone energy. So, uh, so that can be... Uh, something that's good to include at all points um, is coconut oil. Uh, it also has a high smoke point, so you can use it for cooking at higher temperatures. 
um, and um, is uh, has a lot of different benefits. So let's leave it at that for now. Uh, so uh, you know, some things to go home with are you know, when thinking about dementia and thinking about your own risk factors, think about your family history of dementia, think about whether or not you might have ApoE4 alleles, think about whether you have any exposure to risk, things like uh, having obstructive sleep apnea, things like having excessive head trauma from different sports um, or accidents, uh, as well as, you know, different dietary and, um, and uh, you know, personal health-related issues like diabetes or um, hypertension, which is uh, high blood pressure, these sorts of risk factors then increase your risk of developing dementia and you can uh, act upon these issues in different ways, particularly by focusing on what you're eating and trying to decrease the amount of sugar and simple carbohydrates that you're consuming, trying to go uh, you know, for certain prolonged periods without food from time to time to increase your body's sensitivity to insulin. Uh, and also to, uh, to, to look at the, uh, to the micronutrients that you're taking in and making sure you're getting the important things that are important for brain growth, things like omega-3 fatty acids, things like choline, uh, folate, uh, and the, the different uh, B vitamins and uh, vitamin D. So these are some different things that, uh, that are showing some, some evidence for being helpful uh, for preventing dementia. So click like, click share. Uh, let people know about this video so that they can start to prevent uh, dementia in themselves and in their loved ones. And have an awesome day, and I wish you the best brain health. Hey, listeners, some of you have so kindly asked how you can support the podcast. You can help by supporting us on Patreon, so please kindly find our Patreon link in the show notes. You can also support us by leaving a review, so please let me know what you think about the show by leaving a review on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook as Dr. Nissen. And it's important to note that this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. And the use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is content of this podcast and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.